When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. It's April 2002, and Christopher Mayer, the British ambassador, is on his way to Waco, Texas, for an important meeting. It was known as the buckle in the Bible belt. Mayer was travelling with Bush's right-hand man, Karl Rove. And we were due to stay at the Hilton Hotel in Waco. And so Carl and I got into a cab, and we arrived there, and there was some really nice Texan ladies behind the counter. And we said, we've come for the Blair Bush meeting. The Blair Bush meeting, a summit between the two men almost exactly a year after their first meeting at Camp David. This is an important occasion. Christopher's expecting the hotel staff to recognize it, to be on full alert, to welcome the Blair and Bush teams, prime minister and president. Uh, instead, the women behind the desk looked at him. And they said, well, we have, we're having terrible problems with the rooms because your visit coincides with the Miss Teen Texas pageant. And this is a mighty important event round here. And it turned out there weren't enough rooms for the two delegations. In Waco, Texas, Blair and Bush play second fiddle. Eventually, Christopher sorts out the accommodation and they go to the elevator and up to their rooms. And we walked in the elevator and there's an overwhelming smell of perfume. And this was not coming from the Miss Teen Texas contestants. It was coming from their fathers, who were all jammed in the, in the lift. And they all had this massively teased and pomaded hair with lacquer sprayed on. And um, it, was, it, was, it was surreal beyond belief. And I thought to myself, I think I'm now on another planet. This is not planet Earth any longer. But Christopher wasn't there for a cultural tour of Texas. He was there because of this meeting. And this meeting had potentially serious implications because it was expected in London and Washington that a decision was going to be made, a decision that would profoundly shape the futures of both countries and both leaders, a decision about war in Iraq. After he had checked into the hotel, Christopher and Karl Rove went to the airport. Tony Blair was coming in from London and George W came out. And the thing is, was the two of them were going off together to the Crawford Ranch with no advisors. When Bush became president, the Crawford Ranch became known as the Western White House. He entertained everyone there, from Russian President Vladimir Putin to German Chancellor Angela Merkel. It was his kind of Mar-a-Lago. But the house was small, only four bedrooms, and that meant that when world leaders visited, their entourage had to stay somewhere else. But even so, when the two leaders were together, 
There'd usually be their staff around them, listening, making notes. But not this time. Now, you can't imagine what this does to a civil servant, to have your principal set free without any advisor present, that they were going to spend an afternoon, an evening, and a night, and probably breakfast, alone together with nobody present, either from the Downing Street team, or from the embassy, or from the US administration. Not even the chief of staff, not even Karl Rove. And off they went into the sunset. I'm David Dimbleby, and from something else, this is The Fault Line, Bush, Blair, and Iraq. Last time on The Fault Line, British Prime Minister Tony Blair and a newly elected George W. Bush had their first meeting. It was February 2001. They watched Meet the Parents and spent time laughing and cracking jokes. It was a success. These two guys were a marriage made in heaven. And from the first minute they met, they just got on. It was, it was striking, striking. The mood at the meeting was relaxed. The two men were getting to know each other. And yes, of course, they discussed foreign policy. Israel, Northern Ireland, what was happening in Kosovo, and Iraq. As we heard in episode two, there were people within the Bush camp itching for more action on Iraq, and those people had been successful in getting Clinton to make regime change official US policy. But Clinton had never shown any desire to pursue in his second administration regime change in Iraq. And so we put all our eggs in the containment basket. So this was the focus, a policy of containment. And this policy was the one advocated by Britain for a very particular reason. Regime change was not a thing that uh, we liked to do and believed it to be illegal. Britain couldn't support getting rid of Saddam because we didn't like him. Preemptive strikes on another sovereign nation were illegal under international law. So when George Bush comes to power in 2000, Christopher Mayer is worried about some of the people around Bush and whether that might mean a change of policy on Iraq. And he isn't the only one. I had a real um, interest in getting all of Bush's campaign speeches, which I did, reading them thoroughly. This is Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff when Powell was Secretary of State for George W. Bush. Now, Powell was a decorated military general. He'd been chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under George Bush Sr. He ran the campaign in the first Gulf War. A military man through and through. Very troop-oriented, very soldier-oriented, very good leader. Because of this, Powell wanted to know, is this a president who's going to go around the world pursuing foreign wars left, right and centre? Powell and Wilkerson had experience of war. They'd both served in Vietnam and they weren't keen on sending the army out to fight unless it was absolutely necessary. But Wilkerson found Bush's speeches reassuring. I was looking at things like, I don't do nation building. I was looking at things like, other states are sovereign and their sovereignty should be respected. The use of the military to disturb that sovereignty is not something I will be involved in. I was looking at things like that, and I was reporting back to Powell. 
you know, and Powell would say, shake his head and say, good, good, good. Um, so, I mean, there was nothing in there about war with Iraq. And Iraq was only mentioned in terms that we were going to look at the sanctions and see if we couldn't do something about them to make them better and more effective and less injurious to the Iraqi people, particularly children. But I'm looking at a guy who clearly is totally inexperienced but has the right thrust to his words to that point. So I'm thinking it might be a pretty good administration. I'm thinking it might be a dream team. Little did I know. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I was having breakfast on the embassy terrace under the portico with John Major. The former Prime Minister of Britain. So we're just sitting there having a cup of coffee and uh, our social secretary, Amanda Downs, came out and said, oh, Ambassador, a plane has just crashed into one of the Twin Towers. And Christopher remembers thinking, oh, right, Probably a private pilot in a small plane who got lost. This kind of thing has happened before. What was it, 10 minutes later, 12 minutes later? By this time, my wife was down downstairs with Amanda talking about you know, events that we were going to have to organise. This is BBC One. Now a change to the schedule as we join BBC News 24. I could hear them both cry out. We're interrupting normal programmes. And they came out to us and they said, another plane hit the Twin Towers where the both towers of the World Trade Center are now in fire. I remember thinking to myself, this has got to be something serious. And I left John Major and went, went over to my office to find out what the hell was happening. And I got to my office and my private secretary had turned on the television and I saw the Twin Towers smoking. ...of sparks and fire, and now this, it looks almost like a mushroom cloud explosion, this huge billowing smoke in the second. And then they played back some video of the two aircraft hitting. I remember being absolutely so, what's the word? I was mesmerized by these pictures and by what it meant. Mayor realised he had to act fast. What's the best thing for the staff? Do I keep them in the embassy? Do I send disperse them to their homes? 
And in the end, I decided better to disperse them to their homes and just keep a core staff of helpers. And somewhere in all of that, we heard the sound of the plane hitting the Pentagon. Well, the, uh, Aaron, the, uh, there is a lot of confusion here at the Pentagon. It appears that uh, something hit uh, the Pentagon. And what we all detected soon after was the smell of kerosene in the air. A thick black smoke billowing from the scene. Then somebody came in and said, all the police escorts around the embassy, all the police protection has disappeared. There is nobody here at all. Vice President's house, which was next door to the embassy, looked completely deserted, no guards, no nothing. I suddenly realized we were sort of naked, naked in DC, uh, not really knowing what the hell was going on. And so Christopher calls the Deputy Secretary of State. I had to ring some special number because he was already going into lockdown somewhere, saying, well, what the, where the fuck are the police? We have no secret service here at all. And he basically said to me, well, you're not going to get any anytime soon because they've all been called back to protect Congress and the White House. What you have to remember is there was a real feeling that the attacks on the towers and the Pentagon were just the start of it. There'd been no foreign attack on American soil since Pearl Harbor in 1941. And that was on Hawaii, 3,000 miles away from the mainland United States. So at this moment, no one knew what would happen next. Was the White House safe? Was Congress? Was the President? I was in London at the time, and I went straight to the BBC studio to present a special programme that night on the attacks. With smoke and dust. Well, there is the World Trade Centre as it is this afternoon in New York, abandoned. It's like the scenes from bombing in the Second World War. The biggest question we were asking was who did this? What we don't yet know is who's behind it all. American intelligence has said their suspicions have already fallen upon one man. Everyone was saying it was Osama bin Laden, the founder of Al-Qaeda, the Islamic fundamentalist movement. He tried to blow up the World Trade Center in 1993 by filling a truck with explosives and having it driven into the underground car park. Who's been public enemy number one in the state since the revelation that he was behind the World Trade Center bombing eight years ago. What seemed obvious was that America would have to react to this and that they would react, in all probability, by targeting Afghanistan, where bin Laden was thought to be hiding out under the protection of the Taliban, the militant ruling group. About halfway through this live programme, we had a guest on from Washington, a man called Frank Gaffney. He was the head of a think tank called the Centre for Security Policy. And back in the 80s, he'd worked for the Reagan administration, like Paul Wolfowitz and Robert Kagan from the last episode. And he was known as a prominent and particularly hard-line neoconservative. I asked him if he was surprised at what had happened, and he answered... I'm not frankly surprised, uh, because this is precisely the way the... Uh, the cells uh, that we're up against here, and perhaps their state sponsors, uh, are organizing themselves and conducting their activities. At the time, I didn't notice it, but Gaffney is not just talking here about Osama bin Laden. By mentioning state sponsors, he's opening up another front. He's saying it's not just the terrorists we need to attack, it's any state found to be associating with them. His message 
was emphatic. The United States is at war now, and I hope that the president will respond appropriately and accordingly. Gaffney was painting a picture of all-out war. He doesn't say who this war would be against, but he's clear that it would be widespread and not very judicious. I would go after everyone who is engaged in terrorist acts against us, uh, everyone who has made known their uh, determination to do harm to the United States. I think we ought to use this as an opportunity, uh, as has been pointed out by others, to put them on the run. According to Gaffney, it was time for America to act against its enemies. When Bush spoke later that night, he talked about the human cost of what had happened. Good evening. Today, our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack. The victims were in airplanes or in their offices, secretaries, businessmen and women. He looked shell-shocked, hardly able to believe what was happening. A great people has been moved to defend a great nation. Terrorist attacks can shake the foundations of our biggest buildings, but they cannot touch the foundation of America. But his message was clear. America and our friends and allies join with all those who want peace and security in the world. And we stand together to win the war against terrorism. From Britain, Blair immediately threw his support behind Bush and America. We therefore here in Britain stand shoulder to shoulder with our American friends in this hour of tragedy. And we, like them, will not rest until this evil is driven from our world. Shoulder to shoulder, Blair was setting out his stall. Britain and the United States would stand together through this crisis. A week later, Blair arrives in America to attend a memorial service in New York for the victims of the attacks. And then we went to Congress at the end of what was a very long day where the president specially recognized Tony Blair. So honored the British prime ministers cross an ocean to show his unity with America. Who had made this extraordinarily eloquent statement. Thank you for coming, friend. It was a moment of high drama, high emotion, and a moment when you could actually say there was a special relationship between Britain and the United States. So what was Blair's thinking through all this? So it's okay now. It's okay now. Yeah, let's start, yeah. This is Tony Blair. It was an event that, that was like no other. It was absolutely dominant. And we were perfectly aware of the fact that it could be the first of many such events. It turned the entirety of the world on its axis and made us have to rethink what we were about, what we were going to do. I mean, it was it's the only two things that could compare to it were financial crisis or the present crisis over COVID, right from the very beginning. I mean, there were two things that were clear. This was an entirely new level of security threat that had to be dealt with. Uh, secondly, I said that so far as Britain was concerned, we would be with America. Those two things were clear.
it was monumental and we would deal with it together. And at that stage, why did you feel it was important for you to be particularly close to Bush, for you to talk to him as a British Prime Minister? I felt it was important that Britain was close with America because I I could see this was an attack on America as the symbol, if you like, of the of the West, of the free world. And therefore, it was important that America wasn't left to deal with this on its own. And in fact, all the way through, I thought shoulder to shoulder is where we should be. Now, you know, you can agree or disagree with it, but I felt that very strongly um, and that it was important that Britain found itself in, in, you know, in the room of decision-making with the Americans. The room where it happens, that deep-down desire that gets into the bones of any ambitious politician. That night in Washington, there was a dinner, and Blair was in the room. Blair and Bush had a private exchange before the dinner. There's a, there's a sort of White House photograph, the two of them just talking on their own with very serious faces. The main thing that evening was Bush confirming to Blair Iraq, they could talk about at a later date. So Iraq was taken off the table that night. And we all agreed that it was Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, Afghanistan, that were the priority. And Blair was much relieved by that. And so in October 2001, Bush and Blair lead a coalition of 60 different countries. The battle is now joined on many fronts backed by a unanimous UN resolution into Afghanistan. We will not waver, we will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail. The world seemed to be united, banded together in sympathy with America to root out this terrorist threat. That's certainly what we were discussing on the BBC at the time, a war on terror and on Osama bin Laden. But in a small corner of the newspaper world, a team of journalists was about to find out something that would blow apart that narrative and demonstrate that even though all the talk in public was about Afghanistan, eyes had already turned somewhere else. I was contacted by uh, a longtime friend who was at the time serving in Afghanistan, who asked in, in language I will censor a bit, what the hell was going on in Washington? And I asked, well, what do you mean? And the reply was, well, they're taking some of my assets away from me. And I said, well, what on earth are they doing with them? And the answer came back, they're getting ready for Iraq. Yep, new recording, and there are various sine waves. Certainly, this is John Walcott. I was the Washington bureau chief of Knight Ritter, which was at the time the second largest newspaper company in the United States. Knight Ritter owned 32 newspapers around the United States, the major ones being in Philadelphia, Miami, Detroit. They had papers in San Jose, Kansas City, Charlotte. Fort Worth in Texas. No newspapers in Washington or New York or Los Angeles. It served a different population from the big beasts of the New York Times and the Washington Post. It was less geared to serving the coastal elites, to use an overused 
phrase than it was people who lived in the kinds of cities I'd named and in much, much smaller cities that are probably unknown to people, you know, even in this country. And so this is where John ended up, running Knight Ridder's Washington Bureau. And one day, he's sitting at home... Where I'm sitting right now, in the suburbs, the Virginia suburbs of Washington, D.C., when the news first broke. The news that a plane had flown into the Twin Towers. John drove straight to the office. The first image I remember was as we crossed the Potomac River into the District of Columbia from Virginia, you could see a pillar of smoke, a fresh pillar of black smoke, arising straight up. When he gets into the office, he sets about trying to G up his staff. The first job was to rally everyone to, to what was already clearly the biggest story in a long, long time. So he starts deploying reporters, telling them to go and find out what's going on at the White House. The president was out of town. So what was he doing? What was the Secretary of Defense doing? What was the Secretary of State doing? What was happening at the National Security Council? And so his reporters start coming back from the White House, from the State Department, from Defense. And then one of them returns with some startling news. September 12, 2001, uh, one of the great reporters in the Bureau, Warren Strobel, came back from talking to a source about a National Security Council meeting that had been held that day, the day after the attacks. And I asked, well, what, what did they say about Afghanistan? And he replied that they didn't just talk about Afghanistan. And I asked, what else did they talk about? And he said they talked about Iraq. So I actually have a mental block about this. This is Warren Strobel. I trust Walker, but he says that on September 12th, I came to him and told him that people I talked to were hearing that the administration was talking about Iraq. And that kind of set off his very, uh, very fine antenna. And his direction to us was like, what the hell? Find out what that's about. It made absolutely no sense to be talking about Iraq in the wake of an attack by Al-Qaeda because uh, Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein were natural enemies, not natural allies. John Walcott says groups like Al-Qaeda actually hated secular leaders like Saddam Hussein. They were enemies of the faith, not allies. So this didn't make any sense. And when something makes no sense, the obvious response is to ask, why are they talking about that? What, what's going on here? So that was the question that John Walcott and Warren Strobel started to investigate. Talking to people in Congress, talking to people in the administration, in the State Department, in the Defense Department, in the intelligence communities, trying to collect whatever information we could about what was going on. And then, a few weeks later, Warren Strobel took a call. Uh, Mid-October, I think it was actually October 11th, the month after 9-11 phone call I got from a source saying that Jim Woolsey was going to London on an airplane provided by Deputy Defense Secretary Wolfowitz to try and find evidence that Saddam was indeed behind the uh, first World Trade Center attack. Now, Jim Woolsey was the former director of the CIA 
and a prominent neoconservative, and according to this source, he'd been sent to London by Paul Wolfowitz, the Deputy Secretary of Defence, to investigate a theory that it was actually Saddam Hussein who had ordered the very first attack on the World Trade Centre back in 1993. The theory went something like this. The guy who was um, intimately involved in the first World Trade Center attack was like not who he said he was, and he was actually an Iraqi agent. And so Wolfowitz sends Woolsey to Britain, which is where this supposed Iraqi agent was meant to have studied, in Wales. So Woolsey literally went to the South Wales Constabulatory and started asking questions and... uh, freaking out the UK government and also pissing off the US embassy, which had no advanced knowledge of what he was doing. And to me, that was like this huge moment. Okay, not only are they kind of thinking about Iraq, but they're actually looking for bogus evidence to try and make make their case that Iraq should be attacked or Iraq was part of this. uh, They're part of the 93 attack. They must be part of the 2001 attack. And this seems to come from the top of the Bush administration. The hell? And, and it's Wolfowitz, right? This is the number two guy at the Pentagon. It's not like Wolsey went off and did this on his own. And then pretty soon the uh, the talking heads, allies of the administration who weren't in government, started uh, promoting the uh, Iraq thesis. On places like Fox News and the Bill O'Reilly show. I think it's also important that people understand that Saddam Hussein was behind the bombing of the World Trade Center in 1993. All right, so you sound like you're a person that says... Hey, Saddam Hussein should be on the uh, destruction death card right now, along with Osama bin Laden. He should be target number number two, maybe. No, I'd even say target number one, because... And stories like this kept stacking up for Strobel and Wolcott. And there was more and more of this evidence that suggested there was a disinformation campaign, uh, along with a propaganda campaign, to pin what had happened on 9-11 on Iraq, when in fact... There was no evidence to support that contention. All of these stories from these different sources started to convince John... That we have to do this story. We have to find enough evidence, enough credible evidence, that we can write a story saying the administration is now focused on Iraq and focused on removing Saddam Hussein from power. And so... They report on this for four months, building their sources, trying to get people to go on the record, and finally, they publish. The 14th of February, 2002. By that point, it was clear that the decision had been made to go after Saddam and and to get rid of him, throw him out of power. Around the same time as John was publishing his story, President Bush got up to make his State of the Union speech, a speech that signalled to the world that maybe what John and Warren were picking up behind the scenes was true, that America was changing direction. Iraq continues to flaunt its hostility toward America and to support terror. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil, arming to threaten the peace of the world. Christopher Mayer was sitting in Congress listening to that speech. What seemed obvious to Christopher was that something had changed in Bush from the man he'd met three years before in Texas. But 9-11 had been for him a real, using a much overused word, a real personal trauma to be President of the United States when this happens. I'm a citizen of a country that has had these two vast oceans protecting us for all these years. 
You know, we were safe. People couldn't come and attack us, so we thought. And it made him much more open to the arguments made by the neocons that the time had come to settle accounts of Saddam Hussein, you know, to, to drain the swamp, all that sort of stuff. We felt secure. There's no way we could have possibly envisioned that the battlefield would change. And it has, and that's why we got to deal with all the threats. And he came up with a, a Bush doctrine, if you like, which I think was enunciated in the Axis of Evil speech, which was that the enemy is not just the terrorists and those who harbour them. It's any rogue state that might pose a threat to America. And after watching the speech, Christopher writes back to London. He makes clear that although the invasion of Afghanistan has been a success, America doesn't yet feel that 9-11 has been avenged. There was some who thought that, militarily speaking, it was all over. That we'd gone in, we'd destroyed the Taliban, we'd driven out Al-Qaeda, Osama bin Laden had fled into the mountains, all over, bar the shouting. But the American machine, the, the swiveling eyes, started to move away from Afghanistan, westwards towards Iraq. In April 2002, Bush invited Blair to come and stay with him in Texas and to bring the family. Bush always chose the Crawford Ranch for the more informal visits, but behind the scenes it was clear this was going to be a crucial meeting. Back in London, there was a feeling that no one quite knew how it was going to go. I mean, I was concerned about it. This is Jack Straw. He was British Foreign Secretary at the time. I had um, supported Tony for the leadership going back to 1994. I'd been his campaign manager. His chance elevation as leader had completely transformed my career as well. So I had huge innate loyalty to Tony. I mean, I didn't want him to, as it were, tip himself over a cliff. I mean, he, he was very taken up with supporting the Americans, and quite right too, because of this trauma they'd suffered. But Straw says there was a problem to this approach. I wasn't clear whether he was really aware about where the Parliamentary Labour Party was or many ministers in his own cabinet were and how he could be left proverbially up the creek uh, without a paddle on this. Blair might have taken over the Labour Party in 1997 by pulling it towards the centre, but that didn't mean all the party's old instincts had changed, like an emphasis on world peace, the idea that you should only go to war as a last resort. And the party certainly didn't buy any link between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda. They were two separate issues, not a reason to remove Saddam. So what was Blair going to do? How could he support Bush if he couldn't win over his own party? Aware of all this, Straw wrote a memo to Blair before this meeting, telling him... I haven't got the text in front of me. I'm happy to refresh my memory if you want me to. <laughs> well, you said the rewards, the rewards from your visit to Crawford will be few. The, the risks are high, both for you and for the government. And I, I judge there's at present no majority inside the PLP yeah. for any military action against Iraq. Why were you, I mean, let's deal with your thing and then we come to the Blair thing, but you were obviously, you were very sensitive about that meeting with, with Bush, between Blair and Bush. 
I had um, I was pleased that uh, Tony was going to engage with Bush about what happened in Iraq, but I was uh, concerned that in in his enthusiasm to support uh, Bush, he would not give him the difficult messages that we and others wanted uh, him to give. The feeling in the Labour Party back in Britain was that any action against Saddam Hussein and Iraq could only happen if there was international cooperation which followed UN procedures. The Labour Party thought, we can't go it alone with the Americans. We can't jump on the regime change bandwagon. I mean, Tony, he's a friend. I have great admiration for him. I always have done. But, you know, we all have flaws and he doesn't like delivering difficult messages to people. So this is the background as Blair sets off to Crawford and no one really knows what's going to happen. Everything's up in the air and then they arrive. And the thing is, was the two of them were going off together to the Crawford Ranch with no advisors. Now you can't imagine what this does to a civil servant, to have your principal set free without any advisor present, that they were going to spend an afternoon, an evening and a night and probably breakfast alone together with nobody present, either from the Downing Street team or from the embassy or from the US administration, not even the chief of staff, not even Karl Rove. And off they went into the sunset. Blair and Bush alone on the ranch. Christopher went off with Karl Rove. And I didn't re-engage with the party until till supper at the Bushes that evening in the ranch, which in the ranch was, you know, big, spacious, very comfortable. And we had a jolly evening, which country and Western music was playing in the background. And um, uh, we, 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 had a, we had a great meal. And, um, and I think jolliness was the order of the day. Looking back, uh, had Bush and Blair come to some agreement in their private talks at Crawford? I actually have no idea at all. To this day, to this day, I cannot tell you what exactly transpired between the President of the United States and the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Jack Straw agrees. I mean, it... You know, there, there, there's been a continual argument about whether um, Tony gave uh, Bush a totally blank check or what. I mean, no, nobody knows. Uh, because people can have the, you and I can have a conversation in complete private, and we can come away with totally different impressions about that conversation. So there can be two truths from one set of events. Straw was hoping that Blair would make it clear to Bush that he'd only support him if they went to the United Nations and got international approval for an invasion. The obvious question is, to what extent did you influence American decision-making? I mean, Jack Straw told us that um, he was worried that you wouldn't, and I quote him, give Bush the difficult messages he needed to hear. What, what, what's all that about? Well, it's probably about the UN process uh, and the difficulty you know, the difficulty you'd face in doing military action, but also the fact that if you were... You did actually, at that stage, say to the president, we need the UN behind this. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I can't recall whether that was the first time there. I, I mean, I have to go back and check all the the, the records of the meetings. There's a there's a thing I wanted to ask you about your your staff and and it, I mean it's been noted in diaries and things. Uh, remark that you did spend an awful lot of time talking about these things with George Bush, just one on one. Why did you go off? into the woods with George Bush and just talk and talk and talk. And, and what, were you, what were you actually talking about? What were you trying to thrash out between you? You know, when you're dealing with leaders at a, at a top level, it's really important to establish that personal connection and relationship. And all the way through my time of prime minister, never mind with American presidents, was to be able to have a personal conversation. What's hard sometimes to say in front of officials when it's going to go into a, a note is a lot easier to say when you're one-on-one with the leader that you've established a personal rapport with, and you say to him, look, I'm afraid this is, I really need this. Or they say to you, look, I've I've got to explain to you what my problem is, and then you can work out a way around it. The following day, Blair makes a speech at George Bush Sr.'s presidential library. It was everything the Americans wanted to hear. For the first time, he acknowledged in public, if in order to to beat the terrorists, you had to have regime change, and so be it. It was the first time I heard the words regime change fall from Blair's lips in public. The fight against terrorism is right. We should pursue it vigorously, not just in Afghanistan, but elsewhere. Since September the 11th, the action has been considerable, but there should be no let up. If necessary, the action should be military. And again, if necessary and justified, it should involve regime change. But Blair didn't stop there. Listen on, and he starts to paint a picture of regime change as righteous. He says he's actually been involved himself in regime change three times, over Milosevic, the Taliban, and Sierra Leone. But for him, it's not just pride at being involved, pride at ridding these countries of despots, It's actually about liberating people. In each case, the people most pleased have been the people living under the regime in question. Never forget that they are the true victims of these types of regime. I'll always remember driving through the villages near Freetown in Sierra Leone, seeing the people rejoicing, many of them amputees through the brutality from which they've been liberated, and their joy at at long last being free to debate and argue and vote as they wished. Um, by the way, there's something we, we were talking about Crawford um, at some length, you know, your two days in Crawford. S- uh, people said that at Crawford, um, you signed up to the idea of regime change in Iraq, that Saddam had to go. Is that is that true? No, I've always said to to people when they've asked me about this, the same thing, which is I had already signed up to the idea we were going to deal with the whole issue of proliferation of nuclear, chemical, biological weapons because of our fear that terrorism and the proliferation of these weapons could come together. Because, you know, as I will say to people about 9-11, there were thousands of people that died on that day. But if the terrorists had been capable of killing hundreds of thousands, they would have. And we were determined to deal with that issue. But if we could have dealt with it peacefully, we should have dealt with it peacefully. 
So, But you were prepared to resolve it by force at that stage at Crawford if it couldn't be resolved peacefully? Well, that, that was, again, not to do with Crawford. If, if you couldn't resolve it by any other means, then that's what you would have to do. But, you know, at that point, definitive decisions weren't, weren't taken. I don't think they were taken on the American side, really. I mean, there may have been people who felt um, that was where it was bound to end up. But, you know, from my conversations uh, recalling it at the time with President Bush, it was still very much about how we dealt with the issue. So according to Blair, both he and George Bush had still not decided how to deal with the use of Iraq in April 2002. But whatever was or wasn't committed to at Crawford, in the weeks and months that followed, the American administration started cranking up its plans for war, and that left Blair with a problem. How was he going to justify standing shoulder to shoulder with the United States to his party and his country? The answer to that question, how could it be justified, was to transform the legacy of not just Blair, but also Bush, an issue that people come back to again and again when they think of the rights and wrongs of the Iraq war. The issue of weapons of mass destruction. In the next episode, we start the hunt. We don't back down because I am the alpha dog. I am gonna piss all over their walls. I am going to leave my mark. The Fault Line is a Something Else production. It's presented by me, David Dimbleby. Joe Sykes is the producer, with additional production from Jade Scott. Mixing and sound design comes from Evan Arnett at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. And thank you to Dasha Lisitsina, Ali Adlington, Mira Sharma, Russell Finch, Carly Maley, Aaron Baker, Chris Blackley, Emma Lansdowne, Mark Rivers, and Steve Ackerman. And also thanks to the George W. Bush Presidential Library for the use of their archive. <laughs>